Congregation, as we come to the reading of God's Word, our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 4, what has been described as the twin of, of Psalm 3, which we looked at last week. Together, they, they form a pair where Psalm 3 is a morning psalm, speaking uh, there in verse 5 of uh, waking up again after God had sustained him through the night. And now Psalm 4 goes on to speak of laying down to sleep in peace. So these two psalms have been used throughout the history of the church for morning and evening worship, or even for daily morning and evening psalm readings. I think we'll see as we read Psalm 4, this really is um, a bedtime song. Boys and girls, maybe some of you have a a favorite song that you like for mom and dad to sing to you before bed. Um, Psalm 4 might be a good choice. Listen as we read this bedtime song of the king, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Congregation, I wonder when was the last time you heard a sermon about sleep? I confess I've not preached many of them, and yet this is a theme that will come up many times throughout the Psalms. And not just that, but it's, it's something that we spend about one-third of our life doing. Sleep is, is an important topic. It's something the Bible has lots to say about. And so this morning, as we continue to make our way through the Psalms, we consider from Psalm 4 how confidence in God's care for his kingdom allows us to sleep in peace. Confidence in God's care for his kingdom allows us to sleep in peace. Or put a little bit differently, because God's kingdom will prevail, we can go to sleep at night. Now that, I would suggest to you, is the point of Psalm 4, this bedtime song of the king in which we see really three distinct sections. And we see first the king's cry, and then we see the king's call, and finally we see the king's calm. The king's cry, the king's call, and the king's calm. First his cry. As, as the king is heading to bed, he, he cries out to God and says, Lord, you are the God of my righteousness. Hear me when I call. 
You have relieved me in my distress in the past, so have mercy on me and hear my prayer again. And then he tells us why it is that he's in need of God's help, what, what exactly his distress is in this case. And it's apparently that these men of verse 2, these um, sons of men, or you could translate that men of rank, exalted ones, these influential members of society, these powerful men have sought to turn his honor to shame. And the way that David says how long suggests that this has been going on for quite some time. That these enemies, day after day, night after night, have been seeking to turn his glory into shame. You remember when we looked at Psalm 3 last week, that term glory came up in verse 3, where he, he, he says, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. And we said that this speaks of, of the king's royal glory that God has given to him in those covenant promises where he he. Um, it tells him that though David's head is currently hanging low in shame, it would be lifted up in royal power that would be restored. That's what we read in Psalm 2. So that's the king's glory, the, the kingly royal promises that God has made to him. And yet he says that these enemies are seeking to turn them to shame. In other words, they are trying to undermine the covenant promise that God has made concerning his king. They're playing the part of the enemies in Psalm 2, who set themselves together against the Lord and his anointed. They're resisting his kingship and loving vain words. You have the ESV, um, that that word in verse 2, that's that's, um, translated worthlessness, In the New King James, the ESV rightly renders that vain words. David says of these men, how long will you seek after, or will you love vain words and seek after lies? The careful reader of the Psalms should hear there an allusion back to Psalm 2. where The people were plotting together vainly. Those who resisted the kingship of God's anointed, plotted a vain thing. That's the same exact word here in Psalm 4. They are seeking to turn the glory of the king into shame by plotting a vain thing against him and seeking falsehood, seeking lies. Those lies of which the king speaks may be the same gossip and slander that was being spoken of uh, against him back in Psalm 3. In 2 Samuel 16, where, where Absalom's, follow, Absalom's followers believed that, that God had forsaken David, that he was in exile because of some, uh, some sin, that God had forsaken him because he had forsaken God, it may be that same slander or this may be a different instance, but either way, the point is this. These enemies have resisted the king. They have hated him. They have believed lies about him. They have joined in the vain conspiracy against him. And they've been doing this for a prolonged period of time. How long, David says. And so he finds himself in distress, verse 1, looking to God for relief. And that's the king's cry in verses 1 and 2, a cry not unlike that of Psalm 3. Once again, though, in the midst of of all of this noise, the king turns to God. 
Notice he doesn't speak first to those men of verse 2, but he speaks first to God. He turns to in prayer. I'm teaching us again, as, as Calvin said last week, that when the world seeks to drive us to despair and the ungodly use their endeavors to destroy our souls, we must defend our souls by prayer. We turn to God rather than lashing out. We turn to the one who has relieved us from distress in the past, and so we can trust that he will do it again. That, I think, is is one of the main takeaways of these opening verses. You have relieved me in distress, he says, verse 1, which refers not to this present situation, but he's referring to some past distress. You have given me relief in the past, and so I trust that you will do it again. One pastor says wisely, David teaches us here to look back on our own stones of remembrance. David teaches us here to recall the times when God has answered us in the past and, and let that motivate us to turn to him again in our moment of need. Do you do that when you're feeling helpless? Do you trace God's providence and, and look back at those times when God has answered your prayer in the past and let that motivate you to turn to him in prayer again and say, Lord, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. That's the first thing that David teaches us in verses 1 and 2, the king's cry. As we turn to verses 3 through 5, we see the king's call where he says, Know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin, but ponder in your hearts on your bed and be still. Offer right sacrifices to the Lord and put your trust in him. As we have in verses 3 through 5, where the king sort of moves for a moment from prayer to to preaching as if he turns to those around him who are, are perhaps listening to him pray, and he calls them to rightly respond to this situation. We see again here, just as in Psalm 3, and as we'll see many more times throughout the Psalms, that the king is concerned not only for himself, but for his people. Even in the midst of his own suffering and distress, this suffering and distress had been going on for some time, and he cries out, how long? Even in the midst of that, he is concerned for his people. While we, some think that the addressee in in these verses, 3 through 5, may be the sons of men from verse 2, I take the Selah at the end of verse 2 as As a transition, most scholars think that Selah suggests a musical interlude or or a pause of some kind. And and so after the address to the sons of men in verse 2 that that explains to us the context of David's distress, he now pauses and he looks up and he turns to the faithful and he instructs us as to our response. How ought we to respond when God's kingdom appears to be in jeopardy because of the vain plots of those who hate his anointed? How should we respond when the enemies of God's kingdom are seeking to turn the glory of our king into shame? 
That's what David deals with in these next couple of verses where he gives us a, a threefold answer to that question for how we should respond when God's enemies are seeking to turn the glory of our king into shame. First, he wants us to know something, and then he wants us to, to think about something, and finally, he wants us to do something. We see in verse 3 what he wants us to know, that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. If you have the ESV or some other translation, um, it, it may simply say that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, uh, making less clear that in the Hebrew, this is actually in the singular. Him who is godly, the Lord has set apart for himself. And then as we read on into the next part of verse 3, we learn that him who is godly is the eye of this psalm who the Lord will hear. It's the king. In fact, this term, him who is godly, is the Hebrew word hasid, which comes from the word hesed, meaning covenant faithfulness. Covenant love. And so you might actually translate him who is godly as the covenant one. The one to whom God has made covenant promises and who is covenantally faithful to God. You could say the king of Psalms 1 and 2. This king enjoys God's special care as he is set apart. This, this phrase, set apart, is used. Um, the, the only other time it's used in the Old Testament is of, of Israel as they are set apart from uh, the Egyptians during the ten plagues. In that same way, God's king to whom he has made covenant promises in Psalm 2 and in 2 Samuel 7, that king enjoys God's special protection. That's the first thing the psalmist wants us to know, that God's king is under God's care. And therefore, the plots of the enemy against his kingdom are in vain. Which leads us then to, to the second part of our response, when the enemies of God's kingdom are seeking to turn its glory into shame. First, the king wants us to know something, that God's kingdom will prevail. And then second, he wants us to think about something. He tells us to go and meditate in our heart or, or uh, ponder in our anger and not sin. The king is here calling his loyal subjects to acknowledge their godly anger before the Lord of the state of the kingdom in the midst of these vain plots against it. But then he's calling them not to act on that anger, but rather to be still and ponder to go into their rooms and lay on their beds and think. This is maybe a little bit surprising. This is not usually the first thing that we do when we're angry. Maybe we, we go and vent on Twitter or Facebook or we fire off an angry text. We, we rally the troops and, and want to rise up. Often our response, when, when we're perhaps even rightly angered, is to act before we think. But the Spirit of Christ in Psalm 4 commends to us a different approach to first think. To meditate in our hearts and be still. Now Derek Kidner puts it this way. He says, if, if some people's loyalties are too wavering, as, as those in verse 2 who oppose the king, others are too fierce, settling everything on impulse. Kind of like Abishai, we... Um, heard of last week in 2 Samuel 16, who was about to cut off Shimei's head. 
But David says there, as he does here, put away your sword. What have I to do with you, O son of Zeruiah? He says to Abishai, be still. Some people's loyalties are too wavering. Others are too fierce. And Kidder says the one can be as damaging in the long run as the other. In fiercely responding to those who oppose the kingdom, we can sometimes become like them ourselves. Because remember, this kingdom is one of meekness. It's one of suffering. It's one of grace, foreshadowed in the gracious demeanor of David and fulfilled at the cross of Christ where he teaches us that his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And by settling everything on impulse, we are actually acting more like the kingdoms of this world. Like Saul and Absalom. And so David addresses his fearful and frustrated friends who are upset about this opposition to the kingdom. And he warns them not to lash out and make the situation worse. When pastor says an angry, wrong reaction to a wrong action only makes things worse. Rather than to react sinfully, it's better to bring sacrifices, trust in the Lord, and wait for him to act in his time, quietly meditating on matters in the night. Well, this passage, along with with Ephesians 4 that we read earlier, does affirm that it's right to be angered at such opposition to the kingdom. It reminds us to be cautious in our attitude so that we do not fall into sin. There is a proper place for righteous anger, but if our anger is not free from pride and malice and bitterness and a a spirit of vengefulness, or, or if our anger is first and foremost because of the way that we have been crossed as opposed to, to Christ and his kingdom, then it has degenerated into sin. That's what David is reminding us. He's reminding us to slow down and think. To ponder in your own heart on your bed and be still. Which leads us then to the last thing that David commends to us. He wants us to know something that that God has set apart the king for himself. He wants us to think about something, not rushing into impulsive, rash behavior as we're prone to do. Then he tells us to do something. He tells us to trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in him. In other words, he's saying, take your anger and instead of acting on it, pray it to the Lord and trust him to act. Christopher Ashe says, leave room for an angry God. Peter says, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. That's what Peter advises the the suffering Christians in 1 Peter 2 who are suffering unjustly. He commends to them the example of Christ and says, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Entrust yourself to him. Know that he will bring justice. That's the same thing that David is is telling us here, or or rather that, that Christ through David is telling us here. He's telling us you may get angry at those people who, who vainly plot against my kingdom. In one sense, it would, be, it would be wrong not to. There's a way you could read this almost as an implicit command to be angry at that. 
but you need to entrust your anger to me, Christ says. And it's that very thing that that the rest of the Psalms are going to teach us how to do. And and just the next Psalm after this, Psalm 5, David will pray in verse 10 concerning his enemies. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. The Psalms will teach us what to do with our anger about enemies of the kingdom. Like Christ in 1 Peter 2, when reviled, we do not revile in return. When we suffer, we do not threaten. Read a psalm like Psalm 37, do not fret on account of the wicked. But it calls us to meekness and humility. And it calls us to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Are you able to do that? When you're angered, that what you see going on in the world or, or even what you see going on in the church and you feel that you are right to be angry, can you bring that anger to the Lord and trust him who judges justly? Let the Psalms teach you how to do this. So instead of, instead of lying awake at night, worrying and stewing in anger, you can sleep like David at the end of our passage. That's the last thing that we see in Psalm 4. We see the king's cry. We see the king's call. And then finally, we see the king's calm. Whereas everyone else is saying, verse 6, who will show us any good as they fret about their circumstances and, and worry and wonder what is happening? David prays and says, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. And then he goes to sleep, trusting in the Lord and his covenant promise of verse 3, taking his righteous anger and asking the Lord to fight for him. He's able to lie down and sleep in peace with more joy in his heart than even when grain and wine abound. Even though this is a season, apparently, in which they do not enjoy those covenant blessings, even though this is a time of suffering and distress, he trusts the covenant promise of God in verse 3 and believes that he will lift up his countenance upon his people and give them peace. And it's because he believes that that he's able to sing this bedtime song and go to sleep. Congregation, do you see how David here foreshadows our king, the covenant one against whom God's enemies plot a vain thing, against whom they spread lies and false witness. And so he finds himself in distress, yet even in the midst of that distress, he is praying for his people. You notice in in verse 6, lift up the light of your countenance, he says, upon us. He is concerned again, not just for himself, but the covenant one is concerned for his covenant people. The king is here praying the priestly blessing of number six, foreshadowing that one who will be both priest and king. Do you see Christ here foreshadowed? who entrusts himself to God and and even in the midst of people seeking his life, he desires to bless his people and is unable to go to sleep. 
even as he approached the cross, is able to go and sleep the sleep of death, trusting that God will raise him up and make him dwell in safety. And do you see how the king is here instructing us that we can have this same kind of confidence? In fact, he he gives us this spirit-inspired bedtime song so that we might go to sleep with the same confidence that he did. So how are you sleeping? As the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed and, and you may sometimes be caught in the crosshairs So you suffer, and you become angry. How are you sleeping? David teaches us how to get a good night's sleep. And also, if we are not, um, how to assess whether one of the reasons may be because we are fretting about things we cannot control. Lying awake, scrolling, watching the news, replaying that conversation in our head, stewing in anger instead of meditating in our heart before God and being still and offering him that right sacrifice of prayer and trusting him. Adrian Reynolds, a pastor in England, has written a book on on sleep where he argues that, that our willingness to lie down in sleep is itself an expression of trust and faith in a sovereign God. That we can sleep because as we sang earlier from Psalm 121, he does not. And so the fact that our sovereign God never slumbers nor sleeps allows us to do so soundly. Not worrying about tomorrow, but trusting. He says lying awake at night worrying about tomorrow is not simply a misuse of our sleeping hours, but a downright denial of God's care. Which is why D.A. Carson says, sometimes the godliest thing you can do is to get a good night's sleep. It's an act of trust. And David is able to do so because he has reminded himself of God's promise in the gospel and and even looked to the fullness of it when, when God will vindicate him before his enemies so that he doesn't have to. David entrusts himself to God and he goes to bed. Even as Christ, when his life was in danger, when he was at storm in in the sea, when, when people were trying to kill him, likewise was able to sleep because he entrusted himself to God. And it's Christ by his spirit who is speaking to us in this passage through David saying, I want you to believe that my kingdom will prevail. I want you to believe that even as the godly one, the covenant one was set apart, so you who are joined to me by faith are set apart as God's own people. And he will hear you therefore when you cry because of me. Not because of your righteousness, but verse 1, because of the king's righteousness. He will hear you because of me. And though being united to me does mean that you will suffer, and and so you're going to have reasons to be angry, Christ says you too can do what David did and, and can do what I have done and search your heart in silence, learning afresh to trust my Father and lie down in peace. Christ, through Psalm 4, is calling us to trust. 
is calling us to commit our anger to the Lord and calling us to get a good night's sleep. This is the prophetic voice of Christ in in verses 3 through 5 saying to his people, trust me. Lie down and rest. Rest in what I've done and all that I've promised to do and believe that whatever trials you may face, even death itself, even that, you can approach with a calm and quiet peace because of what my death and resurrection have guaranteed. That I will make you lie down and dwell in safety forever. Do you have that peace? That you can truly lie down at night unafraid, knowing that even if God should take you in the night, you will dwell in safety because you are set apart by the precious blood of the Son of God. Christ is here inviting you to know that peace. Christ is here inviting you to to have even more joy in your heart than when grain and wine abound because you believe that he has overcome the grave so that you can sleep the sleep of death knowing that real grain and real wine await you in that place where the vats will overflow. Which we're given even a foretaste this morning where God lifts up the light of his countenance upon us in his son with whom we commune at this table. It says, take this cup and eat this bread. Even in the midst of your enemies, even in the midst of all of the trials of this life, let me put more joy in your heart and help you trust me. All the days of your life, until that time when you will lie down in peace, even on the evening of life itself. May each of us know that peace through the gospel of our Lord Jesus and sleep well. Amen. I lead you now in a prayer um, from the Valley of Vision. Father in heaven, you have promised your beloved sleep. So give us the restoring rest needed for each day's toil. May our frequent lying down make us familiar with death, the bed we approach remind us of the grave the eyes we close picture to us their final closing and keep us always ready waiting for admittance into your presence weaken our attachment to earthly things may we hold life loosely in our hand knowing that we receive it on condition of its surrender As pain and suffering betoken transitory health, may we not shrink from a death that introduces us to the freshness of eternal youth, but let us retire each night in the full assurance of one day waking with thee. All glory for this precious hope, for the gospel of grace, for your unspeakable gift of Jesus. Withhold not your mercies from us, even in the night season, you whose hand never wearies whose power needs no repose, whose eyes never sleep. Help us when we helpless lie, when our conscience accuses us, our mind is harassed by foreboding thoughts, our eyes are held awake by personal anxieties. Show yourself to us as the God of all grace, who has a balm for every wound, a solace for all anguish, a remedy for each pain, and peace for all disquietude. Permit us to commit ourselves to you, awake or asleep, all our life long. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.